Wired.com presents The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. And here is your host, David Barr Kirtley. Hello, and welcome to episode 190 of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. Our guest today is Christopher Buckley, author of such satirical novels as Little Green Men, Boomsday, and Supreme Courtship. His novel Thank You for Smoking was adapted into a 2005 film starring Aaron Eckhart. Buckley is also the author of Losing Mom and Pup, a memoir about the death of his parents, socialite Patricia Buckley, and conservative commentator William F. Buckley. Christopher Buckley's new novel The Relic Master is his first foray into historical fiction and describes a madcap scheme by Albrecht Dürer to forge the Shroud of Turin. And now here's our interview with Christopher Buckley. All right, so we're here with Christopher Buckley. Welcome to the show. Uh, good to be with you. Okay, so I first became a fan of yours back in college when I came across your book, Little Green Men, which obviously caught my eye as a science fiction fan. So I was just wondering if you could talk a bit about how that book came about. Well, that was a book about um, a, uh, a stuffy Washington pundit. Imagine such a creature <laughs> existing as a stuffy Washington pundit who, uh, <laughs> who um, becomes the victim of a, uh, of a secret government program uh, to foster belief in UFOs so as to promote uh, space programs and weapons programs. And they, <laughs> they, this, this program is run out of the basement of the, I think it's the uh, agriculture uh, department or the social uh, security administration, you know, you know, this is a guy who doesn't really have, get, have much to do. Who's who drinks too much and he's, he's pissed off because he hasn't been promoted <laughs> and he arranges for fake alien abductions. And, uh, anyway, so, um, one night he sees this, uh, he's in a bad mood because his latest uh, promotion has been turned down yet again. And he's watching this stuffy Washington pundit on TV being stuffy. And he thinks, okay, you're next. So instead of, you know, um, uh, the type of person who typically says he or she has been abducted by aliens, impregnated by aliens, probed by aliens. Uh, this very respectable, if stuffy, guy is on the uh, golf course at Burning Tree, you know, the establishment golf course in Washington. <laughs> and um, he, uh, he is abducted by uh, uh, government agents dressed up as aliens. <laughs> Next thing he knows, I'm sorry, I shouldn't be laughing at my own <laughs> jokes, but <laughs> he, he wakes up and he's inside, you know, what looks like a spaceship, and he is being <laughs> probed most intimately by <laughs> little green men. And it, it, uh, it sort of changes his life. He goes from, uh, you know, this is a guy, uh, you know, the, the 
call them, <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> in Washington, we have a lovely term for people who uh, run the um, uh, the Sunday morning uh, political talk shows. Uh, they, we call them the Sabbath day gas bags. Yeah, anyway, this is a guy who has his own show. And so now, uh, you know, he gets to interview presidents and prime ministers. And now instead of talking about, you know, uh, uh, you know, relations with Russia or relations with England, <laughs> what they can talk about is UFOs. He becomes obsessed. So he has, you know, the president of the United States on his program who's expecting to, you know, be asked questions about deficit reduction and such. And instead is, is asked by this poor guy, by this guy, you know, what, what, the, what the government knows about UFOs. Uh, but I became, uh, what, what it, I became, uh, 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 I did a lot of research into this, and I am not a believer myself in UFOs, but uh, it fascinates me that, you know, many Americans are. Roughly, the, the statistic is roughly, uh, it's about 75%. Of Americans either believe in or suspect um, that the government is hiding things from us. You know the the famous Area 51 phenomenon. That's about the same number as believe that uh, JFK was killed uh, in as uh, in in a conspiracy that uh, that Lee Harvey Oswald was not acting alone. So I became fascinated by um, by the belief in these things. And I proceeded from there. And in the course of researching the book, I, I went to a number of UFO conventions. Now, you as a science fiction writer have, may have attended these. If you have, uh, <laughs> you know, they are full of very interesting people. <laughs> and it, makes for, uh, uh, it can make for quite an exciting uh, weekend, <laughs> uh, a UFO convention. Did any of those people read your book? Uh, how was it received among them? Um, yeah, this was, you know, the book, David, came out sort of pre, um, I won't say pre-internet. It came out about, what, 96, 97, but it was just on the cusp. I mean, we didn't have social media uh, then. It was, it, you know, we didn't have the extraordinary communication matrix matrices that we have now so it i wasn't you know today i would probably be deluged with um you know with emails um i i didn't really particularly take a position on ufos pro or con i uh, my, my book was a satire on uh the world of ufos and it it offered a an explanation for uh, UFO sightings. It essentially said, "Yeah, the government is actually behind this, but uh, they're creating it." And there are two epigraphs uh, in uh, Little Green Man, and one is from a memoir by this guy named Miles Copeland. And he is the he was he was CIA, 
in the uh, in the early 40s and 50s. He was something of a legend, and he. This was a quote from his. I don't have it in front of me, but um, this was a quote from his memoir. And he said that uh, um, we uh, we put out word to throw to throw the Soviets off balance. We put out in disinformation that we that uh, UFOs existed, and he said, and it worked. It did throw them off balance, but he said. We also inadvertently created uh, a whole cult <laughs> of people who, you know, thought, oh, my God, you know, these are true. The second epigraph was <clears throat> from a story uh, in USA Today. Uh, it was a quote from a, by a guy named Webster Hubble, and you may, uh, some of your diligent older listeners may remember him as the number two attorney general in the first Clinton, Bill Clinton administration. And um, he, it, he said, uh, this, this quote go, goes something like this. He said, uh, when Bill Clinton became president, he pulled me in uh, to, to his office and he said to me, um, Webb or Maybe maybe you called him Hub. There's two things I want to I want you to find out for me. One, who killed Kennedy, and are UFOs real? <laughs> and I thought, wow, you know, you're, you know, the president of the United States. So I use those as the epigraphs uh, to um, to uh, little green men. Uh, all right, great. Yeah, so what's, uh, why don't you tell us about your new book, The Relic Master? Uh, how'd you come up with that one? Well, The Relic Master is a, about a, a 16th century relic dealer. Uh, this was, there was a, a booming uh, trade in them. This was about the time that the Catholic Church was busy hawking indulgences, which if you bought, you know, you, the idea was you, you could buy uh, time off in uh, from your sentence in purgatory, and uh, holy relics, you know, uh, the the knuckle bone of of Saint Jerome or the clavicle of Saint Teresa, etc., cetera, etc., cetera. or the you know fingernail from uh, uh, Saint Cyprian, were um, were very much a part of of the indulgence uh, trade. How I. Uh, <laughs> I had not given much thought to this before, but one day I was uh, <clears throat> surfing uh, the web, as you young people would say, and I came. I was I was doing a short magazine piece on listicles. You know, um, we have an obsession now in the media with, for uh, lists. You know, uh, you know, seventeen reasons why Caitlyn Jenner should have. You know. Um, there were 17 new outfits for Caitlyn Jenner, whatever. And I came across uh, this sort of tantalizing detail that there was a guy in the early 16th century named Frederick of Saxony who had a, a collection of holy relics numbering 19,012. And I thought, I want to know more about this guy. Well, yeah. And I mean, did, when you started looking into these this whole relic business that you describe in the book, did it shock you how cynical and corrupt everything was or were you kind of used to it after 
observing Washington for so long? <laughs> it's <laughs> um, I, I was a product of a of a, a Catholic education, so I you know I knew a certain amount about uh, a church history. I can't say I was particularly shocked. I, uh, everyone knows about uh, the indulgence trade. The indulgence trade back then had, mm, you could say, certain legitimate aims. I mean, it was, it's how uh, uh, St. Peter's Basilica in Rome was largely built from uh, with the proceeds of, of indulgence sales. Now, you, you can take the position, oh, well, now we have a great basilica. Uh, so that that was all for the good. Or you could take the position with, you know, how awful that, uh, you know, uh, a lot of people um, uh, spent their life savings buying uh, buying these indulgences um, just to give um, popes a palace uh, to live in. So, I, no, I wasn't particularly uh, surprised uh, by what I found. What I found was a sort of a fun playground to... Um, to, to work in. I mean, did you embellish this at all? Or, or did things like you, you quote this guy, Johann Tetzel, as saying that his indulgences could free a man from purgatory, even if he had ravished the virgin? That is absolutely factual. I didn't alter any historical facts. This is the first time I've, I've attempted historical fiction. And I think historical fiction can, is, I'm about to say something very obvious. It's it's fiction, but it it has to be historical. I couldn't, um, you know, uh, if I wrote a book saying that uh, you know uh, King Henry VIII cut off the heads of all six of his wives, <laughs> you know, you would probably and legitimately go, wait a minute, you know, wasn't it actually two wives? <laughs> Uh, so no, no, those. Um, I, so I altered no historical fact, but I created a character at the very center of this, Dismas, uh, my, my my relic master, uh, and and made up the action of that plot. But the um, any um, the the real people in the book, Frederick of Saxony, who was Martin Luther's employer and protector. Uh, the uh, Cardinal Archbishop Albrecht of Mines, uh, Paracelsus, the great uh, doctor in, in Basel, Switzerland, uh, whom uh, we can thank for having brought opium back from from the East. He was therefore the you know the, the could be called the father of modern anesthesiology. Uh, the uh, various dukes and a pope and another Italian duke. They're all, they, they're all real people, and I altered no factual detail. Huh, because you mentioned that among Frederick's relic collection was the Holy Prepuce, which is the uh, circumcised foreskin of Jesus. Yes. You said that there were actually 12 of these floating around at the time. <laughs> I'm glad you brought that up, David, because it's not every day one gets to <laughs> talk about the Holy Prepuce. And I, I, I don't ir, ir, irreverently, but I, I, I mean, I, I read in the course of researching this book a scholarly monograph on the subject of the 12 Holy Prepuces of, of Jesus that were um, uh, said to exist in the um, Middle Ages, uh, there were <laughs> there were 
yeah, the, this was the circumcised foreskin of the infant Jesus. And there were 12 churches and monasteries that claimed to have the real one. And Frederick, uh, indeed, had, had one. So at the time, if you told people that you had Jesus's foreskin, what percentage of the population would believe you? Well, that's the interesting question. It's a little bit like the UFO question. Okay, <clears throat> here's, here's this guy, Frederick of Saxony, the guy with these 19, this collection of 19,000 relics. This was an educated, smart, and, and good man he, who just had the, a passion for collecting uh, relics. Now, among the relics, his relics were, you know, uh, a nail from the uh, crucifixion, uh, the lance of Longinus, that's the, uh, the, the tip of the lance that the Roman soldier uh, uh, lanced Jesus' side with the end of the crucifixion to finish him off. Uh, he had one, a mummified uh, body of one of the holy innocents. These were the, remember, the 2,000 uh, babies that Herod ordered slaughtered so that he, after he heard that there was a, you know, a savior had been born. Now, so let's ask ourselves, did someone, did, uh, someone <laughs> called Frederick the Wise, did he actually believe these things were real? Well, maybe yes. Uh, maybe not. His longer view, if you want to look at it that way, was that um, if maybe they maybe they weren't maybe this or that relic wasn't real, but if relics made people pious and inspired them to be good, where was the harm? I but I have a hard time uh, believing that he thought. Every one of his relics was actually real. Right. And so this book uh, is centrally concerned with the uh, Shroud of Turin. How did you come up with the idea to write about that? Well, the Shroud of Turin is, I think, safe to say it is the fascinating artifact. Uh, the Shroud of Turin, uh, just to recap, is the piece of linen um, that is uh, said to have been the burial shroud of Jesus. It uh, bears the um, uh, likeness of a man who has been horribly tortured and crucified and then put in this shroud. It has been <clears throat> documented uh, back to the mid-14th century. It is now in Turin. It has been in Turin, Italy, since the uh, 16th century. The church has never taken the position that it was real. Then in 1988, it was the church agreed to have it tested independently by three uh, physics laboratories. One, the Jet Propulsion Lab in Pasadena. Another, um, a, uh, a, a, I think a microbiology lab in Oxford, England, and then there was a third one, I forget where. So, uh, and among the tests that were done was a carbon-14 test, which, as you know, uh, is a pretty accurate way of dating. Uh, the results of the test uh, show that the shroud 
dated to between 1290 AD and 1360 AD. Okay, so it could not have been the actual burial shroud of Christ. Although science cannot explain how this remarkable um, artifact was in fact produced, because to produce it as accurately as as it was produced. The, its maker would have had to know, know certain scientific facts that weren't known until the 20th century. Anyway, the church in 1988 then declared it to be a fake. They very, you know, they, they stepped forward and said, okay, we, it's a forgery. But they said, however, we uh, believe it is worthy of veneration as, a, as an icon. And the church further attributed various miracles of, to it, miracles of healing, people who prayed or made a pilgrimage to the shroud and were mysteriously healed. So it took, uh, the church takes what you might call a highly nuanced um, mm-hmm. position uh, with respect to the shroud. But, uh, and, there now, and there are a lot of people who still believe that it is genuine. It's a little bit like UFOs, David. You know, there's just people who want to believe in this. So they say, you know, the testing was flawed. And they, some of, you know, some of these people make very good arguments that indeed the testing was flawed. In the book, I, you know, I take no position (laughs) as to its authenticity. Uh, I personally don't think it is authentic, but I think it is fascinating. Well, how about this idea that the shroud was forged by Albrecht Dürer? Is that something you came up with? Uh huh. That yeah, that's that's mine. <laughs> I uh, I was in the course of I you know I tend to build my books, my stories from the you know from the bottom up, kind of brick by brick. I'm not I'm not what you call a terribly inspired uh, writer, so I just sort of put pieces together one by one. And in the course of researching the book, I was thinking, okay, who else was, um, uh, I I knew I wanted it to be set in 1517, which was the date that Martin Luther initiated the Protestant Reformation by nailing his, his theses to the, to the cathedral door in Wittenberg. So I was thinking, well, who else is alive at that time? And uh, one of the people who was uh, very prominently alive was the, the great painter Albrecht Dürer. And in the, he, there's a famous, uh, he, he, he may, one of the fascinating things about Dürer, he may have invented the selfie until he started doing self-portraits. He did his first one when he was 13. Artists didn't do self-portraits. You know, they were painting the crucifixion or the Sermon on the Mount or, or whatever. They weren't, you know, looking at the mirror and painting themselves. And uh, on the back of the uh, book, you'll see a, his famous self-portrait of 1500. And I had been staring at the uh, Turin Shroud. and. I found what to me seemed like an extraordinary similarity between the face of the, uh, the, uh, the man in the shroud and this self-portrait by Durer. And that was, when, that was my, if you want to call it, my aha moment. Well, right, because he's, he's a marvelous character in the book because he's so self-absorbed. And he actually does paint himself as Jesus. Uh, so, uh, you know, it, it does seem sort of plausible. He and... Uh, uh, Dismas, my relic master, and uh, Durer, 
are best friends. They're, they're buddies. Dismas is a former uh, Swiss mercenary who gave up being a mercenary when he took part in a famous battle, which was the first battle in history that was determined by gunpowder. He, he, he took one look at this gunpowder thing and said, I'm out of here. I'm going into a different line of work. And um, Durer is the sort of high-strung artist uh, who's very narcissistic. And Dismas is always teasing him about that. You know, he said, oh, you know, uh, um, well, Durer not only painted a lot of self-portraits, but he also would, if he was doing a, <clears throat> a painting of something that had nothing to do with him, he would insert himself in it somewhere. It was kind of like a, where's Waldo? <laughs> you know, where's Alfred? So uh, Dismas's nickname for him is Nars from Narcissus, the uh, character in Greek mythology who was always uh, staring at himself in, in his uh, reflection in, uh, in a puddle of water. Uh, so also, I just have to ask, uh, to what extent do you think that constipation played a role in the Protestant Reformation? <laughs> uh, <clears throat> I don't think it played any role at all. Catholics, hardcore Catholics, uh, like to take the uh, uh, one of their arguments uh, against Luther was that he was just a grouchy, constipated guy. This, if only there had been X lax <laughs> argument, there would have been no Protestant Reformation. <laughs> I think that's a silly way of looking at it. Luther was. Um, Luther was a very ascetic Augustinian monk. He was, uh, he was uh, at the time that he launched his, uh, his great protest against Rome, and specifically the sale of indulgences, he was a lean, hard uh, uh, monk who, you know, was, you know, a, you know one crust of bread uh, per day and then felt guilty that he was overindulging. <laughs> so he launches this uh, protest, which becomes more and more intense. And Frederick of Saxony, who employed uh, Luther as his chief doctor of theology at his university in Wittenberg, protected Luther. But now every, you have to consider every religious dissident of that era ended up burned at the stake or decapitated. How is it that Martin Luther, who attacked the, the Pope, you know, called him the Antichrist and the whore of Babylon and all sorts of names, how did he survive? Well, the answer was Frederick. Frederick protected him. And after uh, uh, Luther was uh, denounced, Frederick, to protect him further, arranged for a fake kidnapping and hid him away in one of his castles, marvelously named Wartburg. Luther was under a kind of a you know protective house arrest for I think six, seven, eight, nine months. And yes, he was constipated. I think I'd have been too. Consider <laughs> what the you know. What, what 
the diet in, in, in those days was. Okay, so he was constipated. He's under a lot of stress. How did he pass his time at Wurtburg? By translating the New Testament from Greek into vernacular German. And he had such an extraordinary ability uh, at language. He, would, he could render Greek text into emotionally charged, plain, energetic prose that even a, a German peasant could understand that it this document scholar his 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 trans in, later he translated the rest of the Bible and scholars consider this to be the founding document of the modern German language so you can be it, it, yeah you can be interested in Luther's constipation <laughs> but I think it's it's far more interesting to be interested in what Luther accomplished while he was constipated. <laughs> Well, I mean, you mentioned that you were raised Catholic, and I've seen in interviews that you don't consider yourself Catholic anymore. Could you just talk about what impact that had on this book? Well, the book is um, the book is not an anti-religious book. It um, every fact that I uh, adduce in the book about the church at the time is historically based. I didn't make up the fact that Pope Leo X, who completely botched uh, the church management up in Germany to the extent that uh, Luther, you know, launched his, his great protest, I didn't make up the fact that he was an obese hedonist with a uh, voracious and, shall we say, however you consider it, but at the time they were considered unnatural sexual proclivities. Uh, I, didn't, I didn't make up the fact that he, you know, uh, held um, banquets at the, you know, that would make, uh, would have made Petronius blush. I didn't make up the fact that he had a pet albino elephant named Hanno, that he spent so lavishly on his own pleasures, banqueting, hunting, and such, that he'd left the church bankrupt upon his death. So, you know, I'm, I'm not, that's not me inventing that. But I've had uh, some very angry letters from the monks at, at Portsmouth Abbey, where I went four years uh, at, at boarding school. Uh, who were furious with me uh, about the book. And they say, you know, one of them said, you have shown the bride of Christ at its worst. To which I would, I, I think, humbly reply, if I wanted to show the bride of Christ at its worst, I would have written or directed the movie that is currently out called Spotlight. If you want to talk about the worst of the, the Catholic Church, I think you have to look no farther than our own time when the church uh, covered up pedophilia scandals among the clergy uh, on a vast and repugnant scale. And not only in America, but in everywhere, Ireland, Germany, Italy. I mean, um, so... Um, so uh, I think, by 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 contrast, my <clears throat> my book is a, a love tap 
<laughs> I was curious actually what you thought of Spotlight, but was was the sexual abuse was that not going on in the 1500s? Oh, I'm I'm, I'm sure it was. I I don't there, there's no um I I've never come across um documentation of it, uh, but it would have been probably dangerous to document and there would have been no recourse anyway. Um it was i think the 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 real scandals were probably otherwise but no i, I mean i'm i'm sure uh, i'm sure there were you know uh, i'm sure that was probably uh going on but it would have uh, there would have been no authority to uh report it or or contain it human nature is human nature human nature doesn't doesn't change you know the the sins of the romans are 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 are, are, are still practiced the sins of the greek the these these excesses um but i don't know i i um i, I to your question i i don't actually know how widespread um those abuses uh, were but they are they would be repugnant in any age wouldn't they i mean i'm i'm pretty critical of religion on this show and i i really enjoyed the book god is not great by christopher hitchens yes and, i did too he was a great friend of mine yeah i saw in your bio that you actually connected him with the your editor who published that book i did i i mean it was simply uh you know christopher here's john John, here's Christopher, and and they they carried the ball forward from there. It wasn't as though I, you know, had to uh, convince John Carp to to publish Christopher, <laughs> uh, uh, but his his book had a uh, uh, had a huge uh, huge impact, as you know. Um, uh, it it became indeed a um, you know a a certified uh, publishing phenomenon. It was uh, number one on the New York Times list for uh, for a long time, and so I went to one of Christopher's uh, talks or readings at um, Union Square in New York, and uh, <laughs> they were uh, uh, to to say it was standing room only would be an understatement. Uh, they were and they were bringing in books for him to sign practically on on pallets that were <laughs> carried by forklifts at my own book signings i'm lucky to sell four or five books uh i think he must have sold well he certainly sold out uh, the stock i uh, i miss him um i miss him a lot it really seems like since he died that there's been this big backlash against him could you comment on that as someone who knew him well well, I'm not sure what you mean by backlash against him. Um, what uh, what are people, you people sort of try to paint him as a warmonger, kind of? Oh, uh, I think that's. Uh, I I don't think I wouldn't call that a, a backlash. I'm, I'm I'm sure that you know a lot of people disagreed with him on that. He was um, Christopher was uh, as a lot of great uh, uh, men, uh, great men are. Um, might appear, uh, you know, to have had a, a contradictory uh, career trajectory. When I first knew Christopher in the 70s and 80s, 
And even a little bit into the 90s, he was, you know, to the left of Karl Marx. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I knew him for over 35 years. Uh, and then um, he uh, he changed, at least in, in certain regards. I don't think his economic views uh, significantly changed. But there were two uh, events I can point to that steered, that made him a champion uh, in the war against radical Islam. One was the fatwa that was uh, waged against his, his great friend Salman Rushdie uh, in, uh, when was it, 1989, uh, when Salman published his, his novel, The, the uh, Satanic uh, Verses. And the Ayatollah Khomeini put a price on his head and said, "Any any Muslim who 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 dispatches this infidel will get you know seventy two virgins and a and a and a six pack of Miller Lite." Um, and Christopher was appalled by that. And then, of course, nine eleven. Uh, anyway, so Christopher became ardently uh, belligerent on on the subject of the need to. Uh, need to wage counter-holy war against these people. But his books and his words will, um, will go on. Um, his, um, his, uh, he left us a wealth of, um, uh, by which to remember him. Um, his most recent book came out just a couple of months ago, though Christopher has been dead going on five years now, another collection of his essays called And Yet, and I believe it's on the bestseller lists. Um, so I, I don't know that uh, there's, if there's been a backlash against Christopher, it doesn't, doesn't seem to be working. <laughs> there was actually a line in The Relic Master that kind of reminded me of Christopher Hitchens. You can tell me what you think of that, but you're talking about St. Boniface who introduced Christianity to Germany. Yeah. And one of the characters says of him, there was an oak tree that the Franks worshipped sacred to Thor, their god. To show that he did not fear the wrath of Thor, Boniface took an axe and chopped it down. In the end, they cut him into pieces, but now no one here worships Thor. <laughs> yes, I'll, uh, that's a true story. I just rendered it in my own words. Uh, yeah, yeah, substitute uh, got the word Thor for god, and I suppose you, there you have it. It's a wonderful legend. I think that story is largely true, too. Um, there was one other thing in your bio I wanted to ask you about. You say that um, he is surely not the first to point out that satire is another way of being serious. Um, do you think that satire and humor will ever be considered, like, quote-unquote, serious in literary circles? Um, probably not. The um, I... Uh, created a collection of essays a couple of years ago called But Enough About You. And um, I used as an epigraph a something I found by Somerset Maugham, great English writer. And it goes like this. Make the reader laugh and he will consider you a trivial fellow, but bore him in just the right way <laughs> and your success is assured. Um, I think um, 
Now, this is a blanket statement, and have at me if you uh, disagree. I'm sure a lot of people might. But I've, I think humor, satire, comedy, what, what, call it what you will, in a, in, a, in a metaphorical sense sort of sits at the children's table. I, I don't think that's quite fair, but I think we sort of have to live with it. Um, if you were to, I mean, how many, and let me emphasize, I'm not comparing myself to Shakespeare, <laughs> but um, how many of Shakespeare's uh, comedies are considered, well, put it another way, I think we largely remember Shakespeare for his tragedies, not his comedies. Some of his comedies are very good. They didn't particularly work for me, but you know, we remember Julius Caesar, Anthony and Cleopatra, Macbeth, King Lear, rather than much ado about nothing or as you like it. Um, it if you if you go through the canon of Western literature, I don't, you know, not many of the uh, of the iconic uh, books, the you know, the great masterpieces. Um, I think would you consider satire or or comic? Um, and yet, and yet, and yet, you have Gulliver's Travels, uh, which is a satire, and that, that endures. You have uh, Huckleberry Finn, which could be a comedy, but you could also, I mean, it's, it's something much larger than that. The general point I'm making is, I guess, Somerset Maugham's. Uh, Chris, uh, but I will quickly add that the author Christopher Hitchens, most revered, was P.G. Woodhouse, creator of Bertie and Jeeves. He called him the master. And Christopher is hardly alone in that. So maybe, I, I don't know, maybe I undercut my own argument here. <laughs> well, I mean, all, you know, most of your other novels are contemporary satires. And I think people seem to have this idea that Politics has just become degraded in recent years, and things used to be so much more dignified in the past. And obviously, the relic master shows that that not to be the case. Do you think that? How do you think that politics today, and maybe in the coming years, compares to how degraded it's been throughout history? Well, you know, we have a uh, we tend to get a little bit up on our high horses and and snooty about the, uh, the current state of uh, politics being degraded. I think in the age of Trump, it's very degraded. However, uh, that's different from saying it used to be, politics used to be cleaner and more high-minded. You can go back and, and, and read things that were said about Abraham Lincoln uh, you know, we, 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 I mean, you know, we, newspaper columnists or writers calling him up. He was called a baboon, you know, so that wasn't exactly a, a kinder and gentler time. Uh, the reason I turned to, I went back 500 years and crossed the Atlantic and settled in the Holy Roman Empire was I uh, I kind of needed a break from political satire. I don't I don't know how you do political satire today. Stephen Colbert does it brilliantly every night, but that's a TV show, which is different from what I do. Um, I'm sure Saturday Night Live does it occasionally well too, but um, 
if I wrote a novel, David, in which I, I recapitulated verbatim everything that has happened in this current campaign cycle, you know, if, if I had, a, if I created a character called Donald Rump <laughs> and had, and, and quoted verbatim, had in quote verbatim everything that Donald Trump has said, I'm not sure how convincing you would find that as satire. You'd probably say, oh, come on, you know, you're, this is over the top. Okay, so one thing I, I really wanted to ask you is I saw you say in an interview that book tours are just horrible, that you, you compare them to torture. And uh, just... yeah, I, I did that, honestly, to, to, to be funny, um, there, uh, there, well, there are, there are, uh, great, as with anything, there are good moments in book tours and then there are awful moments in, in book tours. The awful moments are, uh, I did 10 cities in 10 days once and, uh, you know, um, and you're exhausted and you're with some AM radio talk jock who hasn't the faintest idea who you are, what your book is about, you know. And uh, those are the parts I could do without. Then there are, you know, the, the moments where you connect with um, your readers. And that tends to happen, at, I found, at small bookstores. So, I, I mean, I love doing those where, uh, you know, the people who are in your audience, whether or not they're 10 people or 20 people or, 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 or more, they want to be there. It's, it's, it's gratifying, you know, when, when someone comes up and says, oh, you know, my, you know, my dad was in the hospital having chemo. So I brought him a book and it made him laugh. You know, those are, those, those, those are the good times. <laughs> I mean, is there anything that could be done? Could uh, book interviewers like me be doing anything differently to, to make uh, book tours more enjoyable? Well, you're doing just fine. But then my, my, first, my, first, <laughs> my first rule is always butter up the interviewer. No, but this is, no, this is a pleasure. I mean, getting, having an hour to talk with an intelligent guy who's, who's read the book and cares about it, maybe read your other books. I, uh, I, I suppose I, should, I could tell this story. Uh, I... Uh, you know, those about the author paragraphs on the back book flap that, you know, it's the, it's the, um, it's the paragraph that uh, authors sort of claim they didn't write. But, you know, it's a, it's a David Kirtley is one of the greatest literary uh, stars of his generation. You know, his books have been translated into 5,000 languages, whatever. Well, I got after five or six books, I got a little bored. And so I, I started making them up, and I wrote one that uh, he has been an advisor to every U.S. president since William Howard Taft. Right? So, I mean, why not? So um, it's day eight of a ten-day book tour, and I'm in a Boston, walking into an AM. It's an AM drive time call radio show. These are the this this is at the lowest of the you know the the totem pole. <laughs> at the top you have you know NPR or or David Kirtley's podcast. At the bottom you have some ignoramus who uh, has a radio show that is mostly about how the traffic is moving. 
And I walk in and he's hunched over the, he's got the book open in front of him and he's, he's speed reading the, about the author paragraph. Right. And his brow is sort of beetling. He's, he's, he's looking at this and he looks up at me and he sort of with this, he stares and says, you were an advisor to William Howard Taft. <laughs> and I was, it was day eight and I was, I was a bit punchy. I said, uh, yeah, yeah, it was. And so he, so he frowned, and he said, well, uh, so we could talk about that on the show? I said, uh, yeah, 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 we could talk about that. And we did. And <laughs> I haven't been invited back on his show, but, you know, it was worth it. <laughs> all right, well, I think that's a good note to end on, because unfortunately we're all out of time. So we've been speaking with Christopher Buckley, and his new book is called The Relic Master. So, Christopher, thank you so much for joining us. Very good chatting with you. And that was our interview. So a big thanks again to Christopher Buckley for joining us on the show. Big thanks as well to everyone who's given us five stars on iTunes, including Burroughs101 in the UK, who writes, Essential listening for lovers of SF, as well as fantasy and horror. Dedicated hosts and cracking interviews with all the big writers in the field, as well as interesting post-interview discussions. So big thanks again to Burroughs101 for that great review. Special thanks as well to Paul Pablo Beckett, who just signed up this week to support us on Patreon. Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is made possible thanks to support from listeners like you. So if you enjoy the show and want it to continue, please sign up to give us a dollar or two per episode over at patreon.com geeks. And if you'd rather make a one-time or fixed monthly contribution, you can do that via PayPal over at geeksguideshow.com crowdfunding. And I'd like to give a special thank you to Jason Venner, who just made a very generous contribution to the show via PayPal. So big thanks again to everyone who's contributed. We really appreciate it. All right, so that was our show. So thanks, everyone, for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is a production of Wired.com. For more information about the show, visit geeksguideshow.com. To learn more about your host, visit davidbarkirtley.com. Music and voiceover produced by yours truly, Jack Kincaid. If you enjoyed this program, tell your friends. If you didn't enjoy it, tell no one. Thank you for listening.